The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Hello. Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth on the Internet airwaves since 2006. I started out on RBN, that's Republic Broadcasting, moved on to Alex Jones's network, GCN, and then spent some time on We the People and whatever else it turned into. And here I am now on Revolution.Radio, the ultimate free speech network, also posting at my substack, kevinbarrett.substack.com. And my shows show up over at the UnsReview, unz.com, where I have a rubric. And you can also catch me talking with... Johnny Punish over at vtforeignpolicy.com. I do regular check-ins with him. So that's what I do, and I try to get you the most important information that the censors don't want you to know about, and the spin doctors and the imperial propagandists. And You know about those people, the people who have been lying about 9-11 since that day, people have been lying about the JFK assassination since much earlier, the people who've been obfuscating the role of the big banksters in ruling the world, which is going to be a theme we'll be talking about very soon. First, let me say, though, in the second hour, Tony Hall, that is Professor Emeritus Anthony Hall, Globalization Studies at the University of Lethbridge, will return to the show talking about the discredited Nobel Prize Committee giving medical awards to mRNA uh, toxin inventors and anti-Islam, anti-Iran propagandists. We'll be talking about the Canadian police assaulting hockey players outdoors to protect them from COVID. We'll be talking about Justin Trudeau's plane and nose being full of cocaine and various other scandals, many related to Canada. So first hour, though, we're going to zoom in on the big issue, which is World War III about to pretty much erase human civilization such as it is from the planet. It's looking kind of that way. Everybody, even Joe Biden, agrees that we're closer than we were since, well, maybe uh, even uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. So this is, this is a critically important issue. The information about this in the mainstream is massively biased, distorted, and, of course, they're downplaying this issue because it's so important, and if people knew about it, they would probably not accept the policies that are being carried out right now by the neocons, we have a great article about this situating the rush to World War III in American historical context. And that's the topic of our first hour conversation with Richard Cook, who came to public attention as the Challenger disaster whistleblower. And he's been, uh, let's just say, uh, a big time, somewhat behind the scenes force for currency reform among other critically important issues ever since. He has a book that's coming out real soon called Our Country Then and Now, which is a look at American history with a focus on the thing that all the textbooks leave out, which is the takeover of the country by a criminal international banking cabal. And he's the author of a brand new article, this World War III about to start, which 
got published at the Sheer Post. At least the first two parts did, but part three was a little too controversial. So I just posted the entire thing up at my rubric at vtforeignpolicy.com. So let's talk about it with Richard Cook. Hey, Richard, are you there? Hey, hi, Kevin. All right. Good to have you back on the show. Great to be back. Thank you very much. Yeah, you've written written quite a bit, uh, I think, since we last talked. You're you're very productive with these really long uh, and really good articles. Uh, You know, these are like good briefing documents, right? I mean, your book would be a good alternative history textbook for a higher level high school or, or university, uh, American history class. And, and your article is a great reflection on how we got to where we are, which is the brink of World War III. Yeah, thank you. Glad, glad you're looking at it. Really appreciate it. I'm glad to see it. Glad to see part three up now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what's up with Robert Shear? Why, why won't he publish part three? Well, uh, I'm not gonna, uh, you know, they were, they've been very kind to me. I published five articles for them in the last, uh, three or four months. So, uh, I'm not gonna complain too much. Uh, but, uh, uh, parts one and two, the focus on the, the history of the conflicts between the U.S. and Russia, and then get into the military industrial complex in the deep state. Uh, I'm not really breaking too much new ground there, but when I get into what the globalists are doing uh, and all the false flags we've had and the possible false flags to come with the U.S. being backed into an economic corner the way it is with the downfall of the dollar uh, and the uh, pending loss of their proxy war in Ukraine, I think that got to be a little too, uh, I, I was pushing too many hot buttons there. Uh, uh, with uh, uh, kind of an establishment uh, website. Uh, but you put it up right away, and so there it is on, on uh, VT Foreign Policy, and uh, people can read it, and I'm very grateful for you uh, to you for doing that. So thank you. Yeah, well, it's actually an honor to be publishing such great stuff. And yeah, I feel kind of lucky because I just sort of blundered into this situation now where some of the best material that's out there in English is coming through me. Right. Uh, like, I, you know, people have put devoted their whole lives to journalism and they've been, you know, social climbers and movers and shakers and really worked hard to get to the top of the information profession. And I just like stumbled into it when they kind of kicked me in the butt and I went flying out of the University of Wisconsin where I was flying right. to be teaching medieval Islamic Sufi studies and things like that. And suddenly here I am with the best stuff falling in my lap because people like Bob Shear won't publish it. <laughs> well, you're doing a great service, and I can tell you I'm not the only one who feels that way. Well, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that, Richard. So, you know, I actually yeah. have, you know, kind of qualified admiration for Robert Shear. I've been a fan of his since his book, With Enough Shuffles, and that book, is good evidence that he shares our concern with the, you know, the sanity of a civilization in a country that's willing to accept this risk of nuclear Armageddon. You know, that book with enough shovels was a really good pushback against the insanity of elements of the Reagan administration. I was out knocking on doors for the nuclear freeze at that point in the the mid eighties. And Shear was one of my heroes or, you know, quasi heroes, at least somebody that you could, you know, say, hey, here's here's a, a somewhat establishment journalist who isn't completely insane. Right. Yeah, and I appreciate uh, the fact that he's uh, put some of my stuff up, including my long article on 
uh, monetary reform. As you know, that's been kind of my hobby since I left the, the government uh, now over 15 years ago. And uh, also, uh, I put up an article on the Kennedy Beacon, you know, the website that's uh, uh, out there for RFK Jr. Uh, they ran uh, one of my articles on monetary reform, and I've really found some kindred spirits within the Kennedy camp that I'm, I'm very uh, uh, grateful to have discovered. And so, yeah, that's a whole other connection. And I'm talking to them about possibly another article coming up on just totally uh, abolishing the whole Federal Reserve system and putting in place a, a democratic monetary system. I think that's that's really where the trouble starts, because uh, the takeover of this country uh, has been a long process, but it's all going back to the creation of, of the fractional reserve monetary system. And people don't really understand this very well. You know, there's so many progressives who have great ideas about uh, taking care of the war machine and uh, attacking poverty and so on and so forth. But not too many people really understand the monetary roots, that when the bankers moved in and took over uh, the United States uh, and got this privilege uh, granted to them to create money out of thin air and to charge exorbitant rates of compound interest for people just to uh, have money in the producing economy, that was the catastrophe that befell us. And the worst thing... Uh, 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 that came about was the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Uh, now, that's over a century ago. And the uh, Federal Reserve Act was supposed to put in place a system to stabilize uh, the monetary system and to get rid of the ups and downs in the business cycle. Well, since then, we had the Great Depression. We have the recession of 1979 when Paul Volcker destroyed the U.S. producing economy and gave us today's service economy. We got the massive financial deregulation of the 80s and 90s. We got Alan Greenspan and his regime of liars loans that led to the Great Recession of 2008-2009. And now we've got the Federal Reserve once again raising interest rates, driving the economy toward recession and making the necessities of life almost unaffordable for the ordinary people in our economy. So all of this is the fruit of the uh, takeover of the monetary system by the international bankers uh, that were totally uh, swallowed up in, in today and that we just absolutely have to get rid of if this country is to have a future. And these are the ones who are driving us to World War III. And this issue of an international banker's cabal that took over the United States in 1913 with the Federal Reserve Act and orchestrated the world wars is widely derided in the mainstream as a so-called conspiracy theory. It's sometimes called a so-called anti-Semitic conspiracy theory because it's believed that many people who call attention to this issue have noticed that these international bankers seem to be disproportionately of Jewish ethnicity, though not particularly religious. And I, I imagine that's probably one of the reasons that you, you know, had to turn to me to publish this part three, because any talk about the money system uh, seems to be, uh, it, it draws a lot of heavy pushback uh, and sometimes deplatforming and so on. That seems, that's awfully convenient for these banksters, isn't it? 
Yeah, certainly is. Uh, all I can say to people who uh, aren't quite uh, up to speed yet on this issue, please read my book, because the uh, the whole focal point of the book, uh, you know, I, I track through uh, an overview of American history, and I combine that with my family history, because you know, my own ancestors go back to uh, the days of the Puritans when they first came over on the boat. And uh, I also have uh, French-Canadian ancestry. I have some Native American ancestry in there. And my family ended up in Missoula, Montana, where I was born, right next to the Flathead Indian Reservation. And so I have a whole history of the Flathead tribes as kind of exemplary of, uh, of the real beauty of indigenous culture and religion in this country uh, and how all of that has been attacked repeatedly over and over again by big money. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's in my book. And uh, yeah, uh, there is a conspiracy that's been going on. And you can actually go right back to the original documentation and see that the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 was done by the bankers from the US and from England and from uh, Europe in order to create a gigantic slush fund that would then be lent to England and France to take down Germany in World War I. Uh, they did it again in World War II, and they're doing it again today. Uh, and you can see in the Ukraine war uh, how the uh, U.S. vulture capitalists, the Black Rocks, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, uh, Vanguard, and all them are just hovering over Ukraine trying to come up with a some kind of a ceasefire with Russia in their failed war in order to have the vulture capitalists move in and reconstruct the Ukrainian economy in their own image and make it into a depot for arms manufacturing, take over their agriculture, take over their industry. All this is just the latest manifestation of something that's been going on for over a century. Wow. Uh, well, uh, and this raises a question of why these international banksters would necessarily prefer to have Britain rule the world in the 19th century and, and maybe up through World War II and, and then prefer to you know, take down Germany again in World War II and have the U.S. and the Soviet Union come out on top. Uh, normally, we think of these international banksters as people who don't have much of a particular connection to any particular country. But it does seem that sometimes they have operated in such a way as to benefit the Anglo elites, you know, starting with the British, but maybe to a certain extent, extent the Americans as well. Uh, so what, what's the relationship between this banking power and then the geopolitics? And, you know, whose, whose side are the banksters on and why? Well, there was a, a merger of interest that came about, and, and I document this in, in a lot of detail in my book. Uh, you know, the, the 19th century saw the creation of today's modern British Empire, and it was done by the British looting India uh, through the uh, British uh, East India Company, which then was taken over by the British Crown early in the uh, in the 19th century. And then uh, they did the same thing to China when they began to inundate China with opium and created uh, a gigantic empire of uh, financial interests 
West, it ruled Asia, and all this money went back into England. And it was mainly uh, taken over and managed by the banking interests, who at that time were chiefly the Barings Bank and the Rothschild uh, banking interests. Then, uh, later on in the uh, 19th century, uh, Cecil Rhodes discovered uh, gold. Well, he didn't discover it, but he, he was the first big entrepreneur to established British influence in South Africa in the diamond and gold uh, mining uh, uh, conglomerates. But the chief financier of uh, Cecil Rhodes's uh, work was uh, Nathaniel Rothschild, the head of the Rothschild banking interests, who uh, went in with uh, money. Again, this was banking money created out of nothing. But uh, he was able to take over the uh, uh, diamond and gold interests uh, in South Africa. And Cecil Rhodes uh, left a will behind him. That, uh, I think a lot of your listeners probably know about this. But it's specified in, in his will that the money was to be left for the purpose of recapturing or regaining the United States of America for the British Empire. And that became the driving force for the whole roundtable movement that Cecil Rhodes left behind with uh, the Rothschild interest at the head of it. Now, this merged early in the 20th century with the Zionist interests who were heavily lobbying uh, London and the British government uh, to establish uh, a new Israel uh, somewhere in the world, and gradually uh, they began to focus on creating this in Palestine. And so this led to the Balfour Declaration of 1917, where the British, the British government, who at that time didn't own Palestine, nevertheless pledged to donate Palestine to the Zionists for a national Jewish state. And if you look at who was involved in drafting the Balfour declaration, which I do in my book, it was the very same roundtable interests that had been working with Cecil Rhodes on creating this new British empire that would eventually bring in the United States as part of it. And they actually did that. And their vehicle for doing that was the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. It wasn't even written by uh, uh, anybody uh, in the United States government uh, or even in the U.S. banking industry. It was written by British and European bankers. Uh, the, the key name in this was Paul Warburg, who came over from Hamburg, Germany, for the sole purpose of writing the legislation for the Federal Reserve uh, Act of 1913 that they, that they duped uh, President Woodrow Wilson into signing. And that was the death knell of American democracy because, as you know, the Constitution gives Congress the right to manage and create money in the United States. They turned that over to the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, which was run by the Wall Street bankers in New York through the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that set a standard interest rate for uh, the entire economy. This was a revolution to allow them to have that power. And since then, they've used that power of establishing a uniform interest rate to create the booms and busts that we've seen ever since then, and that they're now once again creating a, a boom for the banks because you look at J.P. Morgan Chase, record profits with the increase in interest rates, 
but the whole economy now is uh, on the verge of another recession. But all this was part of the merger of interests of the bankers, the Zionists, and uh, uh, the banking interests in the U.S. And the leading banking interests that came to the fore uh, was the Rockefeller interests. Uh, the Rockefellers began, as we know, uh, uh, running Standard Oil uh, based on uh, petroleum. But very quickly, the Rockefellers got into the banking game. And there were actually two money trusts going on uh, during the 1910s and 1920s, uh, all the way up to the Great Depression. Uh, there were the Morgan Rothschild banking interests, and then there were the Rockefeller banking interests. The Rockefeller gained ascendancy during the Great Depression because whereas the other bankers didn't like Roosevelt because he was going, you know, socialist communist, as, as they claimed, the Rockefellers joined with the Roosevelt administration because they saw how much money they were going to make by deficit financing, well, that is Keynesian financing. And the, the deficit financing that Keynes promoted fit in perfectly with the takeover of the government by the banking interests, specifically the Rockefeller interests. And it was the Rockefeller interests going from Nelson Rockefeller to David Rockefeller uh, all the way up through the uh, banking deregulation of the 1980s and 90s up to the uh, Alan Greenspan regime that led to the Great Recession. These were all uh, Roosevelt bankers who, who did all this. And uh, those are the ones who are presently in charge. But there's this unity of interest still between the British and the American bankers. And nobody really knows who's in charge. The phrase is used that the British are the tugboat to the American battleship. I think that's a pretty telling phrase. And if you look at what's going on in Ukraine, it's been the British that have been the most active in working uh, with the Zelensky government in keeping the uh, uh, the war fires burning. Well, well Scott Ritter and, says that Zelensky is a British agent reporting to MI6. Well, yeah, yeah. Scott did a, a fantastic two-part video on that, and uh, and and he was correct. He's absolutely correct. The British have had a long-standing interest, and again, this is in my book, of always taking down the leading continental power that threatened their interests. And this goes way back to the to the days of the Spanish Armada and then the France of Louis XIV, Napoleon, and then it became the Germans. And when the Germans consolidated their empire in the uh, 1870s uh, and became the leading commercial rival to Great Britain, that was when Britain decided, well, the British, uh, the, the Germans are going to be the enemy now. And that's where we got World War One and World War Two. But uh, unfortunately for them, uh, as you said in your introduction, the two powers left standing after World War Two were the U.S. and uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, the British had planned for Hitler and Stalin to kill each other off uh, during World War Two, but that didn't quite work out. And it didn't work out because Franklin Roosevelt was very sympathetic to Stalin and the Russians. And so the Russians... Some, some have argued more... too sympathetic, actually. I'm sorry? Uh, some have argued he was too sympathetic. Uh, there, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Had yeah. Sean McBeacon, was... I think it was, on the show, uh, to looking at, you know, at a kind of a revisionist picture of who really started World War II and whether the U.S. made life 
too easy for the Soviet Union and basically allowed the Soviet Union to uh, become the massive continental power that it was after World War II. That's correct. And in fact, uh, there's pretty good documentation that it was figures within the Roosevelt administration that gave the atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. Uh, because uh, uh, the U.S. government at that time, including Truman, uh, they thought that they had a lock on atomic weapons and uh, that the Soviet Union, uh, after particularly after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was just going to cave in uh, and allow the U.S. to rule the world with their with with their nuclear weapons. But lo and behold, within a year or two, the Soviets began to uh, test their own nuclear weapons, and soon they had the hydrogen bomb. And nobody in the government of the United States could figure out where they get that. But more recent research has disclosed that they got uh, the atomic secrets from people in the United States government or who were working on the Manhattan Project, uh, who gave this power to the Soviets and allowed the Soviets to gain nuclear parity. And that's where we've been ever since. Well, I had Dave Lindorf on this show talking about uh, his work uh, on the uh, real story of how the Soviets got the American nuclear secrets. And and that's a little different from the way you've described it. But I suppose, you know, we could split the difference there. But you know, moving on to the U- Ukraine situation. So if what we have is a sort of a an Anglo-American banking cabal that's running things from behind the scenes, and constantly trying to expand its own power and and wealth. How does the strategy of uh, kind of what is the strategy, by the way, go, you know, going through Russia into China? Is that, that seems to be what the neocons are thinking. But the main effect has been to drive Russia and China together, which seems strategically pretty stupid. So what, what's going on there? Well, you know, you, you speak of the neocons. And uh, the way I write about it uh, in my book is that up until, uh, uh, say, the early 1970s, uh, you had uh, a, a government that was pretty much run by the Rockefeller banking interests. And if you look at the career of Nelson Rockefeller and of David Rockefeller in particular, and, and David Rockefeller was uh, John F. Kennedy's big adversary. Uh, they were going loggerheads over uh, uh, Kennedy wanting to kind of run a New Deal p- uh, type economy, whereas David Rockefeller was fully committed to the banking takeover, banking corporate takeover of the world. Well, you know, Richard, uh, let me just mention here that, yeah. that I, I had William Pepper on the radio show several years ago saying that John McCloy, David Rockefeller's right-hand man was sent to Dallas and was at that famous meeting in Dallas on the night of November 21st, 1963, where the uh, assassination of JFK the next day was okayed and the nod was given. And William Pepper uh, suggested that it was necessary for David Rockefeller to give the nod to that operation. He sent McCloy down there to do that. And he said that he's kind of gotten this from within the Rockefeller family and he wanted David Rockefeller to go public with it or say something before he died. And I guess William Pepper knew, uh, is it, what's her name? Angie or somebody, a Rockefeller woman and tried to, but she wouldn't 
let him get through to David before he died. And so we never got that kind of deathbed confession. Anyway, does that sound plausible to you that, that David Rockefeller would have to give the nod to killing Kennedy? Let me, let me, uh, uh, modify that a little bit. <laughs> uh, the general answer is yes. Uh, and if you look, the guy's name was John J. McCloy. John J. McCloy was at that famous meeting that you're talking about that took place at the home of a, a big Texas oil man named Clint Murchison. And uh, the, the source for that meeting was uh, Lyndon Johnson's girlfriend. And her name was Madeline Brown. And she became quite well known when she was uh, giving out this information. She she did a long series of videos uh, that you can watch on YouTube, which, I, which I've watched, where she names the people who were at that meeting. Uh, are you ready? J. Edgar Hoover, she says, was at that, move, that meeting. Lyndon Johnson was at that meeting. Richard Nixon was at that meeting. I mean, she's the one who's saying all this. And John, uh, the, the sheriff of Dallas was at that meeting. The chief of police of Dallas was at that meeting. So these are the core conspirators. But the other figure was John J. McCloy. Now, who was John J. McCloy? Well, going way back, he was a key Rockefeller banking executive uh, going back into the 1930s. And then during World War II, John J. McCloy was the assistant secretary of war. Wasn't defense then, it was war. The proposal came up to Truman uh, to abolish the Office of Strategic Services, which, as we know, was the predecessor to the CIA. Truman was going to do this because uh, Truman and his inner circle didn't think we had any need for covert action after World War II, because the real intelligence they valued was the uh, electronic intelligence that all the spy stations were starting to be able to operate. But somebody came to Truman and said, no, no, you got to have a successor to the uh, uh, Office of Strategic Services and this successor is going to be the CIA. And that person was John J. McCloy, uh, Nelson Rockefeller's right-hand man. That's where the CIA came from. The CIA was a Rockefeller creation. Now, during the 1950s, there was a falling out between Nelson Rockefeller and Alan Dulles and the State Department because they didn't want Rockefeller in there meddling in CIA secrets. But nevertheless, uh, Rockefeller was kind of the, the godfather of, uh, uh, of the CIA. Uh, David Rockefeller, his younger brother, was also a close participant. David Rockefeller was an Army intelligence officer in World War II. So he was a spook as well. And CIA project leaders would come to uh, Rockefeller Center in New York and report to David Rockefeller on what they were doing. All this is documented. It's, all this is in my book. Uh, so when you have uh, John J. McCloy showing up at this 
pre-assassination meeting with uh, J. Edgar Hoover, Nixon, uh, uh, Johnson, and so on, that puts the Rockefellers at the very heart of the conspiracy. Now, uh, uh, there's another important fact about John J. McCloy. Uh, when he came to that meeting, he was the director of the Council on Foreign Relations. And of course, anybody who's at all familiar with these uh, these things knows that the Council on Foreign Relations is the central uh, Rockefeller-run uh, body that uh, is behind the scenes formulating all of these uh, different conspiracies that the U.S. government has been involved in since it was created at the, at the end of the First World War. So having McCloy there, the, the chief Rockefeller operative, and the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, that shows you without a doubt that the Rockefellers were at the heart of the conspiracy. So, so yes, uh, whether it was David or Nelson or both, uh, who knows? But yes, the Rockefellers were at the very center of this conspiracy. And 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 there and Nelson Rockefeller at the time was named by certain parties as a conspirator. Uh, it wasn't just a coincidence. Uh, so anyway. Uh, I think that kind of answers your yeah, question. Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's the <laughs> that's definitely the the more uh, comprehensive version. Uh, yeah. So, how, how about the neocons then? You're saying the neocons kind of challenged uh, the Rockefellers, uh, or did they or did they just form a sort of a different wing of the same establishment? The the neocons emerged uh, during the uh, Ford administration. And this was when uh, Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney uh, became uh, uh, part of Ford's uh, government. I, I think Cheney at the time was the chief of staff and Rumsfeld uh, and, and then became the uh, uh, defense secretary. And then Rumsfeld and Cheney both went off to run for Congress uh, at that time. And, or, or rather, Rumsfeld had already been in Congress. Cheney went off to run for Congress, and they became a driving force for what became the neocons. But they weren't the only ones, because uh, the staff of, of uh, uh, Henry Scoop Jackson, the you know the senator from Washington, also called a senator from Boeing, was kind of the the nursery for all kinds of uh, Jewish neocons from New York City. That came out of the uh, what they call the Trotskyite wing uh, of the neocons, who gradually be, became a part of the Ronald Reagan administration. They ran Iran Contra, and they ran the uh, trillion-dollar military buildup of Reagan, and uh, they create they, they implemented what was called the Reagan Doctrine, which was that the U.S. would not fight uh, the Soviet Union directly. But they would create proxy armies all the way around the world uh, uh, to fight the Soviets and Russia. And this became kind of a, 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 the modus operandi of the, uh, the neocon movement. And the whole thing just continued all the way up to the project for a new American century that was um, put forth by Robert Kagan and William Crystal which defined the goals of the neocon movement to, to kind of take over U.S. foreign policy and uh, create what became 9-11 and the war on terror. 
So this faction of neocons closely allied with Israel, as, as you know very well, uh, Kevin, uh, kind of superseded the Rockefeller interests after Nelson Rockefeller died and uh, uh, David Rockefeller kind of just faded away as he got older and older and older. But didn't Brzezinski uh, keep pushing back against the neocons to some extent on behalf of that old Rockefeller brain trust? At, at some point, but by that time, the damage had been done, particularly by Brzezinski, because he was the one who identified Ukraine as kind of the pivot point of control of Asia, of Eurasia. Yeah, well, he, he didn't push back so, on that. He, he pushed back against the, no, uh, no, the war on that. Islam he, through 9-11. He put that idea forward. But then when the neocons decided, well, they were going to run the war on terror and take over the whole Middle East, yeah, that's when Brzezinski kind of said, wait a minute, that's kind of going too far. But the damage had been done. Brzezinski yeah, no, it's going too far. It it's smart. completely insane. It's <laughs> diverting well, important resources to a totally counterproductive thing uh, to, on behalf of Israel, not the United States. Well, yeah, I, I think it was certainly it was that. I, I think it was probably a lot worse than that. But. Uh, and, and here's where we come up until today. The war on terror failed. Uh, the war on terror, in my opinion, and not just mine, but other people, the purpose of that was to create the greater Israel. Uh, it was to open the way for Israel to become the dominant regional power and probably as a stepping stone to become the dominant world power down the road. But with the collapse of the war in Iraq, the collapse, the, the total failure in Afghanistan, the, uh, the war on terror failed. And when the uh, Islamic nations, or, or what, what we call the axis of resistance, you know, Hezbollah and, and uh, the uh, Iran and the Iranian, pro-Iranian faction in Iraq and so on and so forth, uh, they have now brought so much pressure to bear on uh, Israel that I think Israel, from everything I'm seeing, is imploding in its, uh, on itself now. Uh, there are uh, increasingly more and more Israelis who are leaving Israel, who are emigrating out, and the main places they are emigrating out to are uh, places like Sweden and Portugal, which have very lax immigration laws. So the war on terror backfired. And that's why uh, I, I put forth the idea that when uh, Zelensky talks about uh, making Ukraine into a big Israel, uh, the whole idea was that uh, they would take over Ukraine, the, U the neocons would take over Ukraine, and then the uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, Jews who had fled uh, Ukraine, particularly in the 1990s, when hundreds of thousands left for Israel when the Soviet Union collapsed, then they would be able to move back into Ukraine and uh, recreate the Israeli government in Ukraine, not 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 leaving Israel altogether, but making uh, Ukraine and Israel kind of co-powers within the, 
the whole Zionist universe. Now, now Richard, and, there seems uh, to be kind of a contradiction between two things you just said. One, that there's Israel has a demographic problem because Jews are leaving. And then secondly, that right. they, they want to send a whole bunch of presumably uh, Jews, although a lot of them are fake Jews, right, just Russians who pretended to be Jewish to go to Israel. They want to send a bunch of those people to Ukraine. So if they if they can't, you know, if they can't keep demographically filling uh, occupied Palestine, how are they going to fill Ukraine? Well, I don't think they're going to fill Ukraine, but with the huge um, uh, collapse of the population of Ukraine, uh, you don't have to uh, repopulate it. You just have to take over all of the key uh, industries uh, and farmland and so on and so forth. And that's what BlackRock is doing. BlackRock uh, is coming in to uh, conduct that takeover. Uh, of the uh, what's left of the Ukrainian economy, and then that can become, uh, you know, kind of uh, the uh, vehicle for uh, whatever Israelis want to move back into Ukraine uh, who left uh, originally. Because if you look at the history of it, uh, a big part of the creation of Israel, going back even into the 19th century, was Jews leaving uh, Ukraine, going to Israel. And of course, Ukraine was a place where uh, much of the original Zionist uh, impulse came from. So all of that is just kind of a, a, a closed circle. Uh, now, Russia, of course, uh, didn't collapse uh, as they were supposed to when the U.S. imposed sanctions in 2022. Uh, Russia fought back, and now Russia is supposed to launch their own offensive into Ukraine which is going to totally negate and and destroy uh, the, this this big Israel plan, and that's where I think the danger comes of igniting uh, World War Three. So the neocons aren't going to accept defeat. No, uh, I don't know if you watched the Duran, which is a a, a, a news program that comes out of Europe. Uh, Alex Cristoforo. Uh, he's from Cyprus, and uh, Alexander Mercurius is a, is based in London. It's an outstanding daily program of, of, of the news from a European perspective. And one thing they continually emphasize over and over again is the neocons have no reverse gear. Uh, you would have thought that by now uh, the, uh, anybody with a, an ounce of sanity uh, in that theater would have said, well, the Russians aren't going to uh, give us a chance to uh, come out on top of this, so we better just make peace. They're not doing this. Every time you turn around, they're talking about sending more heavy weapons, sending uh, uh, Taurus missiles from Germany, uh, sending uh, British fighter planes to the Black Sea. And now Britain even is talking about sending military advisors into Ukraine and sending warships uh, into the Black Sea to counter Russia's uh, Black Sea Navy. I mean, they just pile on again and again and again. They're never willing to say enough is enough. We've got to make peace. They just keep pushing it and pushing it. And I think they're trying to push it to the point where they ignite a, a, a huge war. Yeah, and that ties in with a uh, concern uh, it's been expressed by a lot of people, including Philip Kraske, who's a very good writer, who has been on my show a couple of times, 
he published a piece at the UNS Review several months ago arguing that the neocon plan is and probably has always been to create the excuse for a disabling U.S. first nuclear strike against Russia. Uh, how likely is that? Well, I would take it a step further uh, because in my own opinion, I don't think the neocons, they're not confined to the United States. Uh, they have their own uh, parallel uh, structure in, particularly in England. Uh, I, I think England has been aligned with the neocons for much longer than anyone realizes, uh, and and uh, in Western Europe, in, including Germany and, and including France. Uh, they're not particularly loyal to the United States. Uh, I, I think the there's a real possibility that the underlying motive may be to get the United States and Russia to wipe each other out not just the United States taking down Russia, because the United States does not have the power to take down Russia and retain its own uh, ability to function. Russia has nuclear submarines uh, surrounding the the United States, uh, new generations of ICBMs. The United States, they they fancied themselves at various periods of history, including the early uh, 2000s, is having the capability of launching a first strike against Russia and and surviving as a nation. Uh, they don't have that today. Uh, and so I, I think that the overall plot may be to get Russia and the U.S. to annihilate each other. And then, of course, the survivors of that, being the neocons, can then step in and work their work their fancy with whatever's left of the world. I know we're talking about some major issues and some very serious things here. I, I don't, I, I don't at all discount or underestimate that. And, and I, and I realize the the gravity of what we're talking about. But I think at some point, uh, as you well know, Kevin, people have to face the facts. Yeah, and in this whole idea of you know these neocons uh, who tend to be fanatical, uh, ultra tribal Machiavellian Jewish Zionists seem to be playing the game that I think it was Eric Byrne in Games People Play, that old psychobabble book from the 60s. He called it uh, Let's You and Him Fight. Uh, the neocons are experts at that. It kind of goes back to Netanyahu's father, Ben Zion Netanyahu, uh, writing that book about Rabbi Abarbanel, who 500 years ago proposed that the Jews could bring back the Messiah and take over the world, which is, of course, what the Jewish Messiah is supposed to do. He's a military conqueror who's going to conquer the world for the Jews and subjugate and enslave the Goyim. And the way to do that, Abarbanel said, was to trick the Christians and the Muslims into having an apocalyptic war and destroying each other. And Ben Zion Netanyahu saw this as an admirable step towards modern Zionist real politic. You know, before that, the Jewish messianic millenarians and eschatologists had mostly thought the way Naturi Karta does today, which is that Jews have to wait till the Messiah comes and sets everything right himself, that, the, you know, we can't lift a finger to do anything about it ourselves. And uh, so Barbanel uh, was a huge step towards, hey, you know, we're not going to just wait for the Messiah. We're going to just go out and take over the world and we'll be our own Messiah by doing that. And so we we see them, you know, doing this uh, let's you and him fight with the, the Christian West versus the Muslims with their 9-11 operation. And now you're suggesting that we might see something similar 
uh, with tricking the Americans and the Russians into destroying each other. Yeah, you must have been reading my book last night. Because, uh, <laughs> I, I have been them... looking, over, looking it over. <laughs> Let, let's you and them fight is a major theme in British and American history. Uh, that was that was what we talked about, setting Hitler and Stalin against each other. That was the big let's you and them fight, except for Roosevelt double-crossed Churchill. And Churchill was just steaming in the background because he was not allowed to fully play out that plan uh, but, but yeah that's that's what they're doing and and that's where the big israel i believe was was supposed to come into play but again that's been foiled by the russians uh putin has has ruined that plan uh and of course one reason i say the uh war on terror failed was that nobody talks anymore about uh the western Islam clash of civilizations. The Islamic nations won that clash very quickly. Uh, and I believe they won it in Iraq when they drove the American army out of Iraq and left just a handful that are there now. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think that's the overall design. Now, let me just say that the question now arises, how do you attack the neocons and how do you attack the money power in the United States, which is driving this? Because they're the ones who are driving us into a war, into a world war against Russia. I think you have to attack the money power directly. And, that, and I have a new article I'm working on that talks about that. Because uh, if you can define what happened with the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 as an insurrection against the Constitution, which it was, and I use as an analogy the insurrection by the southern states who seceded from the Union in 1860 in order to preserve slavery. Uh, Lincoln didn't have to go before Congress and ask for, you know, beg for a vote uh, uh, to deal with uh, uh, the attack on the Constitution. He called out the army. And he took direct executive action against the insurrectionists in order to put down the rebellion. And I think a case can be made today that the bankers, the international bankers, with their famous fractional reserve banking, uh, engaged in an insurrection against the Constitution in 1913 that they've been running ever since in contradiction to the Constitution of the United States. And that if we had a president who was uh, had the same stature as Lincoln, uh, for example, uh, the same type of executive action could be taken to suppress this this insurrection. And so that is kind of the next stage, uh, as I see it, in trying to put a stop to this freight train that's roaring down the tracks now uh, toward World War Three. Well, that's an interesting thought. Uh, so. You know, and I, I know that Ron Unz had this great uh, article on sort of the strategy of how to how to push back against the current ruling elite. And he, he thought this sort of uh, the, the central point, uh, the point of, of weakness that should be attacked is the media. And he thought everybody who had, you know, is misrepresented by the media, their favorite issue is misrepresented by the media, which is a whole lot of us should just join together, even if we disagree with each other about everything else and uh, beat up on the media 
And once we've fully discredited the mainstream media, we'll be in a whole new world where all sorts of new possibilities arise. What you're saying is that rather than focusing on the media, we should be focusing on the banking cabal. But I'm trying to imagine how that could work, uh, how within the current media-dominated climate and electoral politics, you could ever end up with a president of Lincoln stature who would do this. I mean, RFK Jr., you could almost imagine that. Uh, Trump, probably not. Although, you know, both of those guys do represent a certain uh, level of dissent from orthodoxy that seems to worry the powers that be. In any case, how would we get to there from here? Well, that's the question. And um, uh, in, in the article that you just published, uh, part three, it ends with a section on uh, a man from Greece, ancient Greece, named Solon. And it said that uh, Solon was an establishment figure who uh, took over the government of Athens and he passed two key pieces of legislation uh, by decree, by the way. Let's, let's, let's put it that way. One is he canceled all debts. No more debt of any kind was allowed to continue in ancient Athens. Secondly, he began to coin and implement a currency uh, based upon uh, uh, metallic coinage that was not issued by debt, by lending the way that all currencies were then uh, being uh, issued, but by the government directly spending it into existence. And if you look at history in the United States, the one time this was done was by Lincoln with the Greenbacks during the Civil War. Uh, the Lincoln government, and this came out of the, the out of the Congress, which was cooperating with him, uh, printed and distributed an indigenous currency that the United States government did not have to go to the banks to borrow through selling of debt instruments. This is what we need to do today. We need to have a takeover by the central government, by a strong president of the Federal Reserve System, based upon uh, an emergency uh, power uh, against an insurrection that the banks have perpetrated that will no longer allow the banks to print money out of thin air and spend on whatever they want. And it's that, it's that money the banks have printed out of thin air that they've used to buy the media. And this all began after the Federal Reserve Act. They began printing money, and then they bought all the major newspapers. They bought the New York Times. Right, right. But, but, but now meeting. if you try to elect a president who will do this, you get disabled yeah. by the media who calls you, you know, you're an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist, you're well, marginalized. Of course. And, and that's exactly what the uh, mainstream media is doing to Trump and to Bobby Kennedy. But at a certain point, uh, you know, both of these gentlemen have very large and growing followings. Uh, we just have to hope that there are enough people who are willing to take this to the ballot box and uh, uh, take back the, the people's government. And again, if you look, Kevin, at the election of 1860, you see something very interesting. Uh, you see, uh, for the first time uh, in the U.S., a splintering of the vote among four different candidates. Uh, so they were able to elect Lincoln with 39% of the popular vote, but that was enough to win the Electoral College. 
Now, we may be facing that same thing in 2024. We may see four or maybe even five or six candidates splintering the vote. Okay. Uh, and if out of that, we if out of that, we can elect a president who can take an activist part in in monetary reform, we may be able to move forward. Well, well if, that. So, if, if that happens, uh, it will be uh, proof of the existence of God. Well, thank you so much, Richard Cook. It's always great catching up with you and and with your great articles and your forthcoming book. Uh, which people can find at Clarity Press. It's Our Country Then and Now, uh, coming out soon. Thank you, Richard. God bless it. Take care. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. Bye-bye.